0: Have a gentle heart when when you hear about hard things.
1: This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar
2: Association. Tansay, bonjour, and hello. Welcome to this special National Indigenous History Month episode of The Every Lawyer. I'm Brad Regeer, CBA President from 2020 to 2021. With me for this episode is the regular host of the CBA's The Every Lawyer podcast, Julia Petro provencher Julia, thanks for asking me back to The Every Lawyer. It's a
3: real pleasure. Thank you to be here today. So um, how is life after being CBA president?
2: I'd like to say that it's back to normal, but I don't know how most lawyers have a normal life. Certainly, uh, I, I know um, I, was wor- I, was, I was doing CBA presidential matters until late in the evening on August thirty first, twenty twenty one, and then the very next day, clients started calling, and uh, uh, we're like, "Okay, you're done being president now. Let's get these projects going." And I was like, "Thank you for being so patient with me." Uh, and it got pretty busy. Uh, I did end up just deciding to take a few days off, uh, sat on the couch and uh, watched Netflix for a couple of days just to just to decompress. But work it picked up right away and. Yeah, it it hasn't slowed down at all. Um, I know in some some areas during the pandemic it slowed down, but certainly not certainly not my job. So, so it's it's I'm largely back to being a lawyer all the time.
3: And are you still podcasting in between all this?
2: You know, I'm not. Um, I had had a discussion with one of our uh, senior associates at the firm about possibly doing our own podcast series with our firm on uh, Aboriginal legal issues and. You know, <laughs> work got busy, and it, it uh, we just never got around to it. And she has since moved on to another firm, so uh, I may have to see if uh, if there's someone else who's willing to do it uh, with me because I, I I really thoroughly enjoyed uh, the podcast that I did while I was CBA president.
3: Oh, that's very nice, and we enjoyed them as well. So we would we wish it will work at some point that you will have your own podcast. Um, and so, what have you been working on uh, these days?
2: Um, the the area that I work. The vast majority of my clientele are indigenous groups and primarily First Nations. And so it's kind of a mixed bag. I've had some litigation and then some of my clients decided to buy businesses and really wanted me to do it. So I, I, had, I had largely left behind doing any corporate commercial work. So I've, I've ended up having to do a bit of a few commercial deals. Um, but uh, certainly the, the litigation has moved forward. And of course, one of the big areas that our firm works in is uh in specific claims which are historical grievances that first nations have with the crown and uh yeah we've been working on that and it has uh that that has not slowed down at all uh more and more and more uh, grievances keep coming up especially as we do the the research and just find uh, a lot of the unfortunate history uh in our country in terms of how uh, first nations were treated by the crown
3: Mm, totally it's sadly increasing probably Um, And what have you got onto your horizon, like what's for the future?
2: Uh, Really just to continue working in this area. uh, In the last number of months, we've opened up uh, here in our Winnipeg office a record number of files on historic claims. Uh, A lot of the specific claims uh, here had been focused on Treaty 5 and Treaty 1, and we're really moving forward on, on claims involving Treaty 2. So that's that's really. I, I, I would actually like to expand our office here if we if we could. Um, and uh, on a more personal matter, I'm I'm actually getting married in a few weeks.
3: Oh, so. congratulations! So that's, that's taking a
2: lot of my attention right now. <laughs>
3: I'm sure it does. <laughs> oh, that's very nice. And it's summer. And, and a lot
2: of people go, "What? Brad and Alini aren't married." <laughs> right. Nope.
3: No, it's happening now. I'm done as a CBA president. I can get married. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's very nice. So congratulations. Very, very good. Well, we
2: were supposed to get married before I became CBA ah, president, okay. but <laughs> this little virus uh, called COVID-19 mm, got in the way. Just
3: a little thing, right? Just a little glimpse. <laughs> so, well, Brad, thank you very much. Um, we've put together an edit of some of the most poignant moments from your conversations on Calls to Action podcast miniseries which you did for the Every Lawyer. A tribute and big thank you to you for all the work you've done over the years with the national and Manitoba branches of the CBA. This episode aims to encourage our listeners seeking actionable guidance in answering the calls to action. We can only hint at the breadth and depth of the material you covered in your podcasts. And so we encourage all our listeners to go back to the podcast archives and to listen to the full conversations. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Julia. And good luck with your new role as CBA podcast host. And remember to have fun.
3: <laughs> Thank you.
2: So now I understand. In addition to my voice, you will hear in order the voices of John Burroughs, Naomi Metallic, Harold R. Johnson, Stacy Soldier, Dr. Val Napoleon, Sigma Dom Shanks, Maggie Wendt, David Naugabo, Brenda Gunn, Amy Kraft, Robin Sutherland, and Alyssa Bird. So let's start with my conversation with John Burrows and Naomi Metallic on calls 42, 50, 51, and 62, all of which deal with recognizing and implementing Aboriginal justice systems. Here's me asking them for their viewpoints on a striking experience that I had illustrating what's at stake. I want to ask you about an experience that I had and your viewpoints on it. Uh, Probably 20 years ago, I was working with a first nation here in Manitoba, and uh, they had they had purchased some land that they were going to add to their add to their reserve. and the land in question had some public utility infrastructure on it. and it, it, as part of the additions to reserve process that that interest had to be accommodated somehow and the the um, the public utility was insisting upon this form of easement interest. And, and I remember being at a meeting and the chief and council were there and the, uh, the the lawyer from the public utility was just insisting this was how things had to be done. And one of the councilors spoke up and he said, um, I, I, this this isn't how we've done things on the existing reserve land base that we have right now. Uh, when we need this infrastructure, we call you guys up, you come out, we show you where you need it and uh, we do a council resolution, and, and and you put the infrastructure in, and that's that. And the, the lawyer just scoffed at that and said, "There's there's no way we we've never done that here or anywhere else. We've always had this easement interest, and you know." And I, I my my Western trained mind was going, "Yeah, I just uh, why would they why would they have done that?" And whereas the other part of my brain was going. There's something that this counselor was, was saying, and, and, and subsequent to that, one of the elders said the same thing. And I went, there's something here, and I I don't know what it is. And, and so I, I, especially as I was driving back to the city and thinking more and more about it, and I went into the land registry system, and, and surprise, surprise, this public utility had never, ever been issued uh, an Indian Act permit or an easement or anything for any of the probably hundreds of miles of infrastructure they had on on this first nations reserve and um and then the next meeting it was very interesting because <laughs> the the dynamic of the table had changed radically um did did i experience an indigenous legal tradition there i mean it was uh you know it, it there's a humorous aspect to it but there's um it was just something so moving about it as i think about it years later
4: I really love that example because it does illustrate what we were trying to talk about earlier, which is law is something you do. It's not something that's just done to you. And so here are these um, counsellors and elders that are trying to work with a lawyer and create law together, co-determine the way that they might interact in this space uh, to have different interests and land be present there and yet recognize that this is going to be reserve land. And so the example is amazing because it shows that uh, it should be multi-directional in the way that we function, um, that there's room for reciprocal elu- elucidation here. And to the extent that that lawyer wasn't taking um, those cues and recognizing that uh, a law as a pro- process of problem solving, um, then we're not necessarily doing our work in an appropriate way. And and in what's also interesting is it's not just an example of Indigenous law, but it's an example of how the, the addition of Indigenous law can actually redirect us back to the legislation in this case, and cause us to see something that... Uh, wasn't being taken up by that utility in that context. So we often say that teaching trans-systemically is not just about the resurgence of Indigenous law, it's opening up new possibilities for the common law and legislation to see that in a new light. And to the extent that we have the resurgence of Indigenous law and the resurgence of common law in ways that are participatory and in ways that don't just uh, have this top-down effect, but really do engage us in... Uh, a democracy that uh, facilitates the dignity and and worth of different uh, folks that are trying to get their points of view across and then coordinate that with some uh, sense of certainty as uh, these agreements are put together. I really think that that uh, is a case study for um, indigenous law. and I'd like to actually pull out this call to action which is to lawyers through the Federation of Law Societies to receive appropriate cultural competency training, which includes uh, all these histories of residential schools and UNDRIP and treaties and Aboriginal rights and Indigenous law and Aboriginal Crown relations, but also says requires the skills-based training and intercultural competency, conflict resolution, human rights and anti-racism. This 27th call to action Um, just fits to this uh, example you've given us because it shows if that lawyer could have pulled on that intercultural competency and had the skills based around conflict resolution that had this context uh, of how Indigenous peoples are in their own laws and then how their own laws relate to the Canadian state. Uh, There's just so much room for adding to our opportunities and possibilities as lawyers it it uh it gives us more tools and more off ramps and more um, um uh, opportunities as I said and, and that's a that's a good thing in my view. Naomi what do you think of my example?
5: <laughs> what John said no uh, John <laughs> I mean that that's a beautiful answer and it just uh, it just had me reflecting because i you know practiced for 10 years and primarily like you uh Brad like uh, working a lot with communities, but working pretty well with Canadian law and how, you know, when you sometimes just come from that vantage point, it almost looks like there's, you know, voids and stuff like that that are created by the Indian Act. But I think that's just a construction of. Uh, so I was, you know, your example makes me think of, you know, the, I recently taught uh, my students about, you know, the um, uh, the certificate of possession on reserve and like, you know, how so many communities don't even go with certificate of possession and they have, you know, customary allotments and, you know, there's even like a really recent case I brought to my students' attention where, you know, the, the courts still really just look at, well, there's nothing in the Indian Act that relates to this particular form of landholding so, you know, it's nothing <laughs> essentially, um, but there's so much room for it. and I think I, I actually, I think I directed somebody to you recently, John, I, I forget which of your Books it's in, but actually talking about the opportunity of. Looking at what you know from the outside might look like to avoid as a void. I mean, there, there we can look to indigenous law, um, you know, on, on the issue of uh, customary holdings and communities. And it and it seems that you know this is sort of adjacent to that example that you were just giving, Brad. And so um, it can really change the perspective that there there is law here, and in fact, um, we can we can work with it and 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 harness it and and yeah, have way more tools and. The toolbox uh, to be able to address situations.
2: Thanks for thanks for that. We I, 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 we're not have a lot of time left, but I got to ask you about a couple of calls to action. So, uh, the first one I'm going to ask you about is is number 42, and this is where the call to action asks federal, provincial, and territorial governments to commit to the recognition and implementation of Aboriginal justice systems <clears throat> in a manner consistent with treaty and Aboriginal rights of Aboriginal peoples, the Constitution Act, 1982, and the UN. Uh, Declaration on the
4: Rights of Indigenous Peoples. What what does that mean to you? Um, it means a lot of things, but one of the things it means is access to justice. Um, when people have the ability to secure institutions and resources to answer questions that don't cost a million dollars, that are in their backyard that to uh, have a check and balance function in relationship to say council or other authorities that are you know, influencing their lives. It, it allows for uh, people to secure answers to their questions in ways that facilitate commercial transactions, uh, uh, address human rights, um, help us with you know, personal injuries and contract issues. And so, you know, this 42nd call to action is just really critical because it says that, um, you know, the governments commit to the recognition and implementation of Aboriginal uh, justice systems in a manner consistent with the Aboriginal treaty rights, the Constitution Act, UNDRIP uh, has been endorsed by Canada. And I taught a course in tribal courts when I was at the University of Minnesota Law School for five years, and it was over a thousand page casebook. And it just gave me huge confidence to see how uh, First Nations in the United States, uh, which are similarly situated socially to uh, First Nations in Canada, can pick up that work and use their language, their stories, their own constitutions, their own laws, their own uh, members to provide independent, impartial decisions that uh, are of the highest standard, that have rigor attached to them, That uh, allow for a transparency and an accountability that is uh, lacking at this moment. And so I think that there's so much in this call to action, which is uh, necessary for access to justice. Naomi.
5: I come from it from that uh, perspective as well. Like I just um, some of the projects that I've been involved with, I mean, I I do a lot looking at um, inequality with respect to uh, provision of, of, of services and a lot of my work is so focused on child welfare and essential welfare but recently i've uh really uh another area that i will add to that is justice that justice services have been sort of treated like other services to indigenous peoples this you know governments fighting between themselves about which one doesn't have responsibility treating it like the perennial hot potato um, meanwhile communities are not you know, uh, justice is really <laughs> important in terms of, you know, decision making and accountability and transparency, the, way, the beautiful way that uh, John articulated it. And uh, you know, that is so fundamental, security and safety um, in a broad sense, and being able to uh, have control over, you know, how we interact with each other is, is, so, is so fundamental.
2: In some cases, the path forward is clear and the benefits to all are more or less obvious, or at least easy to point out to someone who may not see them right away. In other areas, the calls to action force us to take a hard look at the inadequacies of the current system. For this, I invited Stacy Soldier and Harold R. Johnson to discuss calls 34 to 40, which deal with Indigenous people in the existing colonial justice system. I would just like to mention that... The late Harold Johnson passed away this past February 2022. I was very honoured that he agreed to be a guest, and my thoughts are with his family. If you could fix something, what would you fix?
6: Uh, I would delete the word deterrence from the criminal code.
7: And, And why would you? Firstly, it doesn't work. It's never worked. What we're dealing with is unhealthy communities. And the communities are made unhealthy by the justice system, in part by police. By taking our people and sending them to jail where they learn a new culture.
6: Residential schools erased our culture, but they didn't give us a replacement one. In about 1960, in Saskatchewan, we started locking up Aboriginal people, and the incarceration rate has continuously climbed since then. We changed the criminal code in about '95, added section 7182e, didn't make any difference. The incarceration rates continued to climb. Supreme Court came down with the decision R versus Gladue told judges to pay attention to what the legislation said, that they have to take into account the unique circumstances of Aboriginal people. Nothing changed. Incarceration rates continued to climb. During that period, I had a judge and I made glidue arguments and he got really angry at me for making those arguments. And I know he gave my client a harsher penalty because I had dared to make glidue arguments. Supreme Court came back with R versus IP. He told judges, you damn well pay attention to what we said in Gladue. Nothing changed. The incarceration rates continued to climb. Now we're in 2021, and nothing that we've done tinkering with the justice system has made any difference. And now we're locking up more women and children than at any time before. Throughout this period, we've been sending people to
7: jail, they come back to the communities and they bring back a new culture. They bring back jailhouse culture. In jail
6: you learn violence solves problems, the tough guy's the hero. The institution's gonna feed you. If you have bed on a roof, you learn to disrespect authority. Then we bring this culture and this jailhouse language back into our communities and we teach it to the youth. We've got youth today who think that jailhouse culture is aboriginal culture and through this process we continuously destroy our communities but justice isn't interested in communities we've got this story we tell ourselves that justice is about the individual that we can only deal with individuals and it's not our business
7: to solve community problems and in Maintaining that attitude, we're destroying communities.
6: And we need healthy communities to have healthy people. Thanks. Stacy. do you have anything you want to add to that?
8: The only comment I can really add to that is just there's this expectation from the public that the criminal justice system has to deal with people. They've got to lock people up. And so, you know, these very American ideas and these very old—I I, say—old-fashioned ideas about crime and punishment um, really takes over, particularly when you see um, cases that attract a lot of media attention. And what's really forgotten in all of this is that by the time people get to the criminal justice system, there's already—they've already been through a number of system failures. And by systems, I mean things like the family has failed in some way. And for many indigenous people, it's as a result of colonization and uh, many of the different after effects that have gone on over the last century and, and a bit and a century and a half. Um, so the family, you know, is dealing with a lot of trauma and dealing with trauma that's been long-standing within them and their communities. And then you look to the community to maybe, you know, deal with this person. Like this, this person is having a lot of difficulty. Their family unit is in disarray. Well, okay, then, like, let's bring in the CFS system. And then again, we see um, throughout the CFS system throughout the history, particularly in Manitoba. And all across the country, we have the, we have a number of different ways where the CFS system offered no assistance in making life better for Indigenous people. And in fact, oftentimes, a lot of trauma have come out of that system. So then, you know, the person then gets to the criminal justice system, and now there's this idea that, okay, well, the system is going to clear this up and, and uh, take care of this problem. But we're really forgetting that just by the time the person gets there we're sort of the last stop, the criminal justice system. And it's like putting a Band-Aid on something that's completely gushing, um, a a complete gushing wound. You know, that's basically our solution. Uh, And that's basically what the public, you know, and the public gets outraged that things, you know, that we're not locking people up and we don't have the death penalty. Um, And so I think one, there needs to be education in terms of what the justice system actually is set up to do. And then also the realities of what's, of what are some of the things that has brought a person to the criminal justice system and understanding of um, the failures that have occurred that have put them in this position.
2: Can, can you give me some examples of times when the system
6: failed indigenous peoples? Easy. A woman and her boyfriend, they're young in their 20s. Uh, they're having a couple of beer. They're not drunk, they've only had a couple. They're sharing a cigarette. He reached over and took the cigarette out of her mouth before she was ready. And something about him touching her lips
7: triggered her PTSD and her fight, flight, or freeze. The next thing she remembers, she's
6: outside and she she was giving the knife to her aunt. She'd stabbed her boyfriend seven times. There's a huge victim offender overlap. As a Crown prosecutor, I handled 1,500 files a year in Northern Saskatchewan. To assume 1,000 of those files documented the trauma, uh, multiple traumas, because it isn't just the victim. We know that the offender is traumatized by the atrocities that they commit as well. So we've got an offender a victim, and the five kids who watched in each of those files. Now, take my 1,000 files and multiply it by 11 prosecutors for Northern Saskatchewan, and we've got 11,000 files a year, each documenting multiple traumas, and there's only 37,000 people in Northern Saskatchewan. It doesn't take very many years until that population is traumatized multiple times. Now you got a highly traumatized civilian population and a traumatized police force. I don't know how many members I know right now who are on PTSD leave. They just seem too much. All of those files that I looked at with all of those pictures of crime scenes and autopsies, the ones that filled me with vicarious trauma, well, those police officers were, were there and they weren't looking at pictures of blood. They could smell the blood. And we've got a, so we've got a traumatized population and a traumatized police force
7: interacting and the public expects good things to come from that. And it isn't working.
2: A common theme throughout my conversations on the calls to action was where to find hope particularly when faced with having no choice but to study the colonial legal system and the brutalities it has inflicted and continues to inflict on Indigenous peoples. Here's more with Stacy Soldier and Harold R. Johnson. I asked them straight up. I want to ask you both, what gives you hope for the future?
6: Land-based healing. A friend of mine set up a program called Camp Hope out of Montreal Lake. And healing whole families, taking them out onto the land. And traditional 28-day treatment programs have success rates between 2 and 5%. 2% for the treatment centers we send our people to, 5% if you spend thousands of dollars a week and go to places like Vancouver. Um, Camp Hope, taking people onto the land, had a success rate in the high 70% range. And he told me that sometimes when he brings people back at the end of the day, they'd be crying. They'd say, I'm an Indian, but I never said a fishnet before. I'm an Indian, but I never said a rabbit snare. So taking people out onto the land, connecting them, gave them their identity back. I'm Indian. And it also gave them a sense of belonging. I belong here.
7: I belong on this land. And when you have your identity and a place to belong, you can begin to heal. So if we're going to go forward with the justice system,
6: and it's not going to go away just because Harold Johnson is really upset about it,
7: then we can marry the two. Instead of sending people to jail, let's send them to bush camps, reconnect them to the land. Give them their identity back. Give them a sense of belonging. What I learned in the justice system is that people respond when you give a shit about them. Just showing that you care a little bit and people would respond. That objective, professional attitude just drives people away. So I'm going to tell anything to lawyers in the profession coming into the profession learn to give a shit learn to care you can do some good
8: what gives me hope um when i see the students that i've had at the faculty of law in the last few years uh, who've taken my class um, when i've i've been invited to speak at high schools um, I took part in a living library in one of the local school divisions with grade six students. And so one of the things that really gives me so much hope is how knowledgeable um, these young adults at the law school and certainly these kids in high school and in elementary school, just how knowledgeable they are about First Nations issues, about the Indigenous history in our country and the truth with respect to residential schools. Um, they just they, they just have this knowledge about it and this understanding that, you know, looking back to me being in law school or even in my education growing up, that information wasn't provided. And in law school as well, there's a lot of interest in um, taking uh, taking the class, the seminar that I taught, as well as the class that I'm in. I find my students just are so incredibly engaged and so knowledgeable and so it's when we break down the barriers and we do things like read and listen and attempt to incorporate the calls to action, that's when we start seeing those underlying issues. We start seeing the different perspectives and move forward in a positive way. And so one of the things that I told the seminar the first day and the last day is that when we know better, we do better. And so not just with us personally, but the people around us
9: within our practice.
2: I'd like to pick up on Stacey Soldier's words here because they tie in nicely with my conversation with Dr. Val Napoleon and Sigma Dom Shanks on Call to Action 28, which calls on law schools to require students to take a course in Aboriginal people and the law.
10: I think now that there are two colonial stories out there that are really powerful. One is that our law is so different from your law that I can never possibly explain it to you and you can never possibly understand it. And what that denies is that we were and are intellectual people able to articulate our substantive laws, legal processes, legal principles, and so on, which is the work we're doing, of course. And we're capable of thinking across legal orders. Our ancestors did that. They were intellectual peoples. The other colonial story is that our legal orders and our law are so fragile that if you try and do anything with it you're going to break it and so therefore you better leave it alone. And so those colonial stories paralyze what people the the kind of thinking that people are willing to do, the kind of teaching that people are willing to do. And we have to undo those stories and we have to support people to to be the best that they can be and they will make mistakes and that's the way of it. So I I really I really think that that there's Potential and possibilities that that we've yet to fully realize.
2: Signa, you have anything, Dad?
10: Oh
0: my gosh! H- how do I keep saying "ditto" in a conversation? <laughs> and that's okay. But maybe I can sort of think of or like contribute some things that I thought of while Val was talking. One of the things that uh, you know I I heard um, Val mention the idea of in- indigenous scholars also feeling nervous, you know, and you know, I feel like sort of frozen in my tracks is every once in a while the way I have to think about it is, um, you know, uh, thinking of how um, some peoples might have some knowledge that is um, deeper and learned within the family and learned within the community. And there might be some peoples who don't have that history. And so are personally struggling with trying to do catch up. And, feeling a great privilege in learning, but also feeling a great burden to get it, to get it better. And, and I think in all of this, and I'm not sure if Val would agree with this, is in a sense of, um, I heard a poet last week um, describing her poetry and saying, have a gentle heart when, when you hear about hard things. And I thought um, there's so much of this that um, is so important for us to do, but we need a gentle heart as we see the moments where we're in shock and awe about how long it's been since someone has talked about Win or has talked about um, the role of Ogamas, and also think it's very important to tell people about that stuff. But to also see that there's going to be so many moments where in the old school sort of ivory tower kind of way, we're so still learning you know so that whether we think of it as the the fabulous sort of packages and kits and tools we can share with people helping or whether we think of how we're literally trying to make a syllabus up that's due in two weeks for a course that we are are very aware that it's going to be hard on us too and that we're going to be making mistakes and that it's important and that how we decide to talk about it next term or next year or in a decade might be a little bit different as well, too. And and I think so many stages of the, of the lifting that's going on with the changes um, that are behind the issue of this call to action, so much of that lifting is heavy. Hmm. And it's even heavier than me trying to get a dead treadmill out of my house right now, which I'm looking at, which has barricaded me into my kitchen. Um, so please come over and help me <laughs> but, um, that that I just keep thinking I have to be supportive and finding humor and finding you know, a way to make a cup of tea way more regularly than I would typically do, because this is going to be hard and it's going to seem so imperfect so many times, but that's okay and it's still important to sort of trudge on. In that respect, when I'm doing all of this, I, I never think as far as any area of um, topics and history and laws that I can learn, there is no possible way I will ever think of it in terms of me especially being an expert. <laughs> and, and in fact, I think that kind of frame of mind, number one, rubs completely wrongly with how we're trained in sort of typical law school kind of ways. Like somebody is a specialist in an area, or they have an expertise in something, or they practice this area, and and I just find in in all of the the heavy lifting that is exciting and important to do in this area, there's there's no way I can ever have that kind of frame of mind about it because I will miss the moments where I have to still be humble about the mistakes I'm going to make, where I'm going to find out some really important teachings one year and some even more important teachings the next year. It's like I I think in all the sort of tactile and sort of content things this call is asking for, it's also for sure asking of me to have a method, an attitude, a spirit that is welcoming of others and, and welcoming of me <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm struggling and feeling like I'm about to fall.
2: A welcome, perhaps you could say a non-optional, moment of levity from Sigma Dom Shanks that underlines the necessity for self-care and working together, particularly when confronted with daunting or seemingly unbearable tasks. On that note, let's move on to part of my conversation in Call to Action 57, Aboriginal Crown Relations with Maggie Wendt and David Nawagabo. Call to Action 57 calls for governments at all levels to educate civil servants on the history of Aboriginal peoples in Canada, treaties on Aboriginal rights, Indigenous law, and Aboriginal Crown Relations. I do know you worked on the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society uh, versus Canada case about the Inequality of funding for child services provided to First Nations children. What what is it about Canadian society and our institutions and law that allow this sort of inequity be, to be accepted? Do we need Do we need cultural competency training for civil servants? Would that help?
9: I mean, so it's funny you phrase that in the past tense that I worked on that. I mean, I continue to work on it. I just filed a factum in that a case the other day at the federal court. So. Yeah, I'm counsel for chiefs of Ontario on that. And that's because there's a different kind of funding situation than in the rest of Canada for Ontario. But if you asked me, I actually don't think that the answer is that complicated in reality. I think it was something that I, again, I kind of used to grapple with and, you know, hopefully through experience have really understood that just, I mean, it's just really racism um, and money. And for years and years, uh, governments were able to get away with running systems that were not equal. And that is across the spectrum of social services that, and infrastructure and really just anything that First Nations people on reserve especially receive. And we've just, as a society, I think, accepted or be- and benefited from and been extremely comfortable with A situation in which um indigenous or first nations people on reserve aren't equal and we've never given that uh uh, you know a fair shake as a policy option and people will ask me well how how do you solve these really systemic problems of inequality and, and bad social outcomes or whatever and i'm like well let's try equality as a policy choice which is something that this this country has never attempted before and do i to your question about do i think that cultural competency training is something that will assist sure i sure do it can't hurt so for starters that's that's true and I, but i think there's something to me in terms of working on these really complex matters of social programming reform where because of the years of our acceptance of inequality in this country we've we've really first nations people have lagged so far behind in terms of their outcomes. And as a result, I, I think that this is something that civil servants and, and frankly, you know, all Canadians, I don't wanna just say civil servants, but certainly civil servants have grown uh, complacent about. Where I think the civil service comes in and the notion of cultural competency training becomes important is that, I, I think we've grown complacent about it, but I also think that most of the civil service doesn't really understand what it looks like. And from the get-go, that's from the top all the way down, you know, the top of the civil service, all the way down to, you know, entry-level positions, particularly in Indigenous services, is that people don't have any experience working with First Nations people. They don't have any experience having visited First Nations communities often. And they really don't understand the lived experience and yet purport to govern first nations people as if they have a moral or intellectual or program-based authority over them.
2: I'm I'm going to paraphrase here. We had one of the TRC commissioners say, essentially you can take the racist out of the system, but you still have a racist system. What else needs to change?
1: You know, uh, I'm not so sure about that. Not really sure. You know, I'm, working on a, a few cases right now i think the i think the judiciary's got to be prepared to be more forceful you know in the early years as you probably know the supreme court of canada would and even even the superior courts and the courts of appeal they knew what the right thing was they knew how they should decide but they didn't want to force the the hand of governments too much, right? So it was a careful approach, like Delgama for example. They made a ruling, which was good, but then they decided they couldn't issue the, the order that they ought to have, Declaration of Aboriginal Title. So they sent it back, you know, after, I don't know, 20 years of litigation and millions and millions of dollars. Well, now they're starting to be a little more, they're a little braver about issuing orders, being less fearful about the implications of those orders, like the, the Chilcotin case, they did issue a declaration, the first of its kind on Aboriginal title. I think the courts have got to be more willing to be more forceful with government because governments, politicians, and the people that work for them are still, they still got too much room to maneuver, right? They got still too much latitude to to avoid having to do things, to do the right thing. Uh, so I think probably more forceful um, uh, court decisions. We get, for example, uh, that child welfare case that went to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. Um, there we have an example of of, uh, I think, an institution, tribunal that's that's prepared to force that understands the the uh, the problems within that system. Uh, the the I don't know if I'd call it toxic, but certainly it's it's not healthy towards indigenous people and indigenous rights. I'm talking about. Uh, Indian Affairs, uh, what's called CERNA and ISC, I guess it is, Indigenous Services Canada and Crown Indigenous Relations uh, Affairs. Um, they still don't have within their system a healthy attitude about the rights of Indigenous peoples.
2: The editor's cut has to come somewhere in an episode such as this, and we're at a good point here to turn it to my discussion on calls 43, 44, 45. 46, and 94, which deal with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I spoke with M.A. Kraft and Brenda Gunn. So the the action plan, we've, we've, we've mentioned that. To you, what does the action plan look like? I know there's been some criticism that it's the timeline says three years to create an action plan, but what does an action plan look like, you know, at the end of the day? M.A., you want to have a...
11: I think Brenda can go first on this one. I'll jump in.
2: Oh, okay, Brenda. <laughs>
11: it's a it's a good question, and I have a really good cop out answer. A national action plan will look ideally how different Indigenous peoples want it to look, right? Um, and so it's hard for me to say a national action plan should look like X or Y. But that's probably not the most useful answer to our listeners. So one of the things that I have been thinking about is that the development of the National Action Plan, again, really needs to be regionally specific, needs to be um, on a nation-by-nation spaces so that there's opportunities. But importantly, I think the National Action Plan has to look also holistically at the rights. And so we can't prioritize civil and political rights at the expense of economic, social and cultural rights. Particularly, I think after the national inquiry, we want to ensure that economic and social rights, which have been recognized as key protectors for indigenous women and uh, also important for protecting Indigenous women against violence, that those are given equal priority and consideration to other rights as well.
2: Maybe you have a view on the action plan?
11: Yeah, I I think that what's laid
12: out in the legislation actually is a very interesting guide. So there are two elements of the action plan. Uh, At first are measures that are going to, that are going to address, you know, past and ongoing injustices and kind of bring us into a sphere of respect and understanding good relations. The second uh, measure is really about that oversight, um, remedies and accountability with respect to implementing the declaration. So I think there are two things. And and in my view, this mirrors and, and echoes a little bit of what the TRC has said, which is we need to repair past harm, we need to address systemic discrimination uh, in a variety of different ways. And then we need to build some mechanisms to ensure that there is meaningful implementation of the the declaration.
2: I'd like to wrap up this look back at my conversation and calls to action with an excerpt from my discussion with Robin Sutherland and Alyssa Byrd. Call 11, education funding.
13: I was one of the Uh, a student who was like very, very fortunate enough to get uh, post-secondary support from my community. Um, And in the sense that they covered um, tuition expenses and gave me a bit of a living allowance and things like that. I often, I find that a lot of students have a hard time admitting that, um, especially in a place like law school, um, because what ends up happening is that you hear the prevailing um, stereotypical narrative, like, oh, uh, indigenous peoples always get free handouts and things like that. But, uh, I usually, whenever somebody had asked me, I would always say upfront, like, no, I was very fortunate enough to get, um, support from my community. And I would take it as a educational moment where I can teach them. Like, you know, it's, it's not always a guarantee funding first off each first nation community has their own, Uh, funding structure and policies around applicants and how that process is done and those policies and things are in place are are in place because of the scarcity of funding and um, things like where I have to renew for um, refunding every year I had to report on what my GPA was every year I had to um, give updates to my student advisor to what courses I was in and if I was in if I, um, when my GPA for when my courses, like this is all through undergrad, not just through law school, but if my, some of my GPA were getting kind of like low on certain things, they would do a check-in and kind of like, see what's, what's going on. Do You need other support. And so when it came to the financial stuff, um, I felt very fortunate that I was able to get like that, because that's something that if I hadn't had it, I would not be in post-secondary education, never mind a professional degree like this, if that wasn't offered to me.
2: Other than the the financial aspect, mm-hmm. what else did you need to go to law school?
13: <laughs> I my mean, friends joke around a long time, like, we needed scheduled crying times.
7: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
13: I personally would not have survived law school without the supports from my Indigenous um, legal colleagues and who are now my best friends. That's Raven Dominique Kobe, Danielle Morrison, and Del Dick As because there are other indigenous students with me who, were in my, who entered law school at the same time. And if I didn't have the supports of other indigenous law students at the school, I would have, it would have been a completely different experience. I would probably would have just like kept my studies gone to school, came back, and just did my own thing. But having the supports of other Indigenous people in my year was a lot of help.
2: So was was law school a comfortable place for you?
13: No. And it was not a comfortable place for a whole bunch of different reasons. One of them, again, I think you brought up before of how the economic and class background of a lot of people entering law school is very much different from your standard uh, Indigenous student entering into post-secondary and professional degree. Um, There are names for students like who are second or uh, third generation of lawyers and judges. Um, We call them legacies. And those are... The people who come from that kind of background are very, very much different than an Indigenous student. So, when, so not only that is a student aspect, but also the um, the stuff that is being taught to us. Uh, personally, myself, because I grew up very strong and close with my grandparents and uh, my, my day when Anishinaabe teachings that I was very aware of what I refer to a lot as indigenous legal traditions and entering into law school, being taught about the, the common law system and how that structure comes into place in building the Canadian legal system is, was really tough. Because again, you're getting constantly, well, this is the rule of law, the rule of law. Um, but that's the rule of law as it benefits Canadians and Canadians. Um, the Canadian colonial system. And that was built on top of, uh, um, not on top of, it was built disrespecting indigenous legal systems. So that was another real challenging thing of trying to, not reconcile not reconciled to, but like um, thinking about the systems that are in place and how they're so different.
2: And, and yet indigenous legal systems, in my view, form part of the, the legal fabric of Canada uh, alongside the common law and civil law systems. But it's but it's not taught.
13: No, I'm just gonna say like it's it's not held with the same respect.
2: I'm just gonna ask: Is there anything either of you would like to add or say? I'll I'll start with Robin.
6: I guess a
14: couple of things. I just wanted to. Uh, I guess when we're talking about the sports. I think one of the big sports that I want to uh, reiterate that Alyssa did uh, mention is that, that peer support. I mentioned family support, but I think the support of peers is is super important. I've seen that at the law school at, at Lakehead. Because we're such a small faculty, we admit uh, 65 students per year. The students really do form a tight-knit, uh, close community, and they really do rely on each other for a lot of support. And I find that that gets them through a lot of uh, challenges that uh, they might not even bring to me or my, my colleagues at the law school. So I think peer support, again, whether through... Your community at the law school or through a larger Indigenous community like uh, the Indigenous Bar Association does a great job of connecting Indigenous students with each other. Um, again back to the, I guess, legacy of resi- residential schools. I just wanted to make one point about that as well. Um, I mentioned the varying impacts on communities and families. I want to give one example of my uh, my family. Um, my mother and her two brothers both they all attended uh, St. Anne's in Fort Albany. It was one of the notoriously uh, worst schools in Canada. And they all have been affected in different ways. Um, one, one of them is uh, living a very professional life, um, despite uh, other issues with alcohol and substances. And one on the other, on the other side of the spectrum is uh, I think the most affected, uh, struggling to live a uh, normal life, going in and out of jail, dealing with heavy substance and alcohol issues. And another is kind of maybe further on his healing path. He's kind of gone to the reconnect with the land and his traditions as focusing on the spiritual side of, of, of himself. And I think that is kind of the key to his success in dealing with that legacy of residential schools. It's focusing on the self, taking care of yourself before you can take care of others. I think that's true in the legal, legal profession as well. You need to pay attention to yourself and take care of yourself before you can hope to help others. I just like to leave that, leave that thought with everyone. Miigwech. Thanks, Robin.
2: Alyssa, anything you want to add?
13: Uh, yeah, that's um, that's really nice um, words that you shared, Robin. Thank you for that. Because I again resonate a lot with some of that stuff with having being a second generation of a residential school survivor myself, with my grandparents and extended relatives. Uh, we're I believe we're entering not entering. We're are starting to see a change, and a lot of the legal profession's approach to um, issues with related to the call to actions and just an overall general kind of opening your eyes a little bit more to the issues around um, racism and all those types of things. And so what I'm experiencing and have been experiencing and kind of further promote has been working with people within the legal system to, do better and know better.
2: I'd like to thank all of my guests in the Conversations and Calls to Action podcast series. In this episode, you heard John Burroughs, Naomi Metallic, Harold R. Johnson, Stacey Soldier, Dr. Val Napoleon, Sigma Dom Shanks, Maggie Went, David Nawagabo, Brenda Gunn, MA Kraft, Robin Sutherland, and Alyssa Byrd. I'd very much like to thank you, the listeners, for your interest and for lending us your ears, and Julia for getting me back in front of the CBA podcast microphone.
3: Thanks a lot, Brad. We kept this lovely exchange between you and Sigma Dom Shongs for the end.
2: And uh, Turtle Mountain area, I'm very familiar with myself being here in uh, southern Manitoba.
0: Yeah, so uh, I don't know if our grandmas got her, their haircuts in the same place, but... Uh, <laughs> Whenever I was with my grandma, we'd, we'd go to Melita and go to the Turtle Derby in Boisemain.
2: <laughs> the Turtle Derby takes a very long time to complete.
0: Yes, it's a very slow <laughs> event, very slow event.